Dear Father, be with us just now as we seek to understand more clearly who you are in character. And may your Holy Spirit of truth enlighten our minds that we may see your heart of love. Amen. Well, it's about a year ago that a concerned medical student in Loma Linda invited me to give a talk for the Chinese Church Vespers service. And this was the title that she chose, The God of the Old Testament. So I've left it the same, but uh, the title implies something, doesn't it? What does the title suggest to you? Yeah, there's a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament. Who's the God of the New Testament? Jesus. Who's the God of the Old Testament? That is the question. Do we see a discrepancy between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, perhaps some are thinking there really isn't an issue at all. I mean, God is God, right? He can do whatever he wants. Sometimes he burns people. Sometimes he drowns them. Sometimes he kneels and washes the feet of his enemy, as he did with Judas. God can do what God wants to do, and who are we to question God? Well, does our picture of God really matter that much? And I thought I'd begin just with a story. Um, it was about 15 years ago that I was doing my residency training at a county hospital in Southern California. And this was a very chaotic hospital where the majority of the patients had no insurance. And so very often they would present with very advanced symptoms of disease before they came to the hospital. And I remember very clearly a man in his mid to late 50s who came in just about every month for one problem or another. He had diabetes and refused to take medications. But much more than that, he was an alcoholic. Um, he was addicted to multiple drugs, especially heroin. And as a complication of all of this, he kept coming into the hospital, one problem after another. Well, finally, on one occasion, he was admitted for a very, very severe infection involving his leg. And this was uh, due to multiple factors, really. His blood sugars were very high, and also he'd run out of veins in his arms, and so he was trying to inject drugs into his leg, and he came in with this horrible infection. And so he was treated by, I, I would say, well over a dozen caring doctors, and uh, very aggressive therapy with antibiotics. Everything was done to try to save his leg, but eventually his leg had to be amputated just above the knee. There was just no other way to save the patient. Now, based on this story, would it make sense to warn patients about the doctors at that hospital? Say, did you hear the doctors in that hospital cut off the legs of their patients? Unbelievable. I mean, that would be a ridiculous conclusion or summary of how doctors in that hospital treat patients. No, the doctors there are caring, they're competent, they're trustworthy. It's a good place to go if you're sick. Well, I believe this story illustrates just a small dimension as to the dilemma God is faced with as he interacts with us in a very chaotic and rebellious environment. And if God is really just like Jesus in character, he is kind, gentle, and even humble. But what we see in the Old Testament is God stooping, condescending very, very far to reach the worst of us. And when he engages himself in that environment, there is a risk of God being misunderstood. But God could have looked at planet Earth and just said, look, I mean, I'm not getting involved 
in that mess down there. It's going to ruin my reputation. Right? But thank goodness he did. God got involved. And our job now is to come back and to look at these stories and to keep Jesus as our clear picture of who God is in character and to go back through each and every one of these stories with the lens of Jesus Christ. Does our picture of who God is matter? Well, Dorothy read this verse to you last week, and it really, to me, is the heart of the Bible. And eternal life means to live forever. No. Yes, eternal life does mean to live forever, but I love the definition that Jesus gave. Eternal life means to know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ, whom you sent. How do we know the true God? Through the man, Jesus Christ. And he went on, I have shown your glory on earth. Glory is character. I've revealed your character on earth. I've finished the work you gave me to do. And if there's any doubt, what work was Jesus given to do? We read on, I have made you known. Or as some versions say, I've revealed your name. The Message Bible has, I've revealed your character to the men and women that you gave me. Jesus came as the bright light manifestation of God's character. And eternal life means to know God. The words to know have so much meaning in the Bible. It means intimate, personal, relational. And all of this is based on a knowledge of God's character. So we will strive to go through a few of these stories today. But I believe, having now gone through several trips through the Bible Uh, in book-by-book Bible studies that I become more and more convinced every time through that really God is just like Jesus in character. And any description of God as a vengeful tyrant slowly evaporates. But first, I think it would be, uh, we should at least acknowledge that there can appear to be some discrepancies between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And let me just go through a couple of these quickly and uh, then we'll discuss this in a little more detail. First, you'll remember the rule in the Old Testament about adultery. If a man commits adultery with the wife of an Israelite, both he and the woman should be put to death. And so when the woman was brought to Jesus, which really was a trick, wasn't it? I mean, if they were really following the rule of the Old Testament, they should have brought the man as well. But they brought the woman, and expecting Jesus, I mean, he knew the Old Testament, what would Jesus do? And of course, we know Jesus said, I do not condemn you. Is there a contradiction there in the Old Testament? She should be stoned. In the New Testament, I do not condemn you. We'll discuss this a little bit. Well, in the Old Testament, we read about fire occasionally coming down from heaven to consume. And so, not surprisingly then, when Jesus, on one occasion, was not welcomed in a certain town, the disciples, having heard or read the Old Testament, they said, Lord, do you wish us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? But notice... Jesus turned and rebuked and severely censured them. He said, you do not know what sort of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. Again, to some, this can appear to be a contradiction. Another contrast. Remember that when God came to Mount Sinai, as described in Exodus 19, that if anyone crossed the boundary to that mountain, even animals, children... They were to be shot with arrows or stoned. They were to be killed. So again, I would just wonder, the disciples here, people are wanting to bring children to Jesus. So some people 
brought children to Jesus for them to place his hands on them, but the disciples scolded the people. Okay, you don't come right up to God like that. And I don't even know that the disciples understood really who Jesus was fully, but they were trying to protect him. But notice again, when Jesus noticed this, he was angry. Very few times is Jesus described as being angry. But he was angry and said to his disciples, Let the little children come to me and do not stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And I love imagining this. Then he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on each of them, and blessed them. Okay, a wonderful scene. Okay, but notice Jesus went even further than that. He took the children on his laps, on his lap, but also read the description here. Very colorful in the Message Bible of what the Pharisees didn't like about Jesus. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit and lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Okay, their perception here is they watch Jesus interact with tax collectors and even the rebellious people of that day, uh, it seemed uh, inappropriate to them. Why such a contrast? One God, not too close, Another, come close. All of you, the worst of you, come close. Well, I think the logical question to ask at this point then is, who was that God in the Old Testament? I asked this question once in a Bible study, and a student replied, the Father. And I asked why, and the confident reply came, because Jesus would never do some of those things that are described in the Old Testament. All right? But remember, what did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And as we just read in John 17, his whole purpose in coming was to reveal the character of the Father. Jesus was kind, gentle, and humble. So we can safely say the Father is kind, gentle, and humble. So our job is to try to put all of this together. Well, who was the God of the Old Testament? The words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. All ate the same spiritual bread and drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that went with them, and that rock was Christ himself, the God who went through the wilderness, the 40 years of wandering, the God who came down on Mount Sinai was none other than the Son, who we know as Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 8, It's an incredible chapter describing a very contentious argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus makes this bold claim, and they understood what he was saying three times. And you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am who I am. Are those words significant? Who is the I am? Who came to Moses at the burning bush as the I am? The Son, Jesus Christ. And he repeats it three times. I am who I am. And finally, the last time, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. And do you remember how this story concluded? What did the Pharisees do at that point? They picked up stones because this was blasphemy. They knew the claim that Jesus was making. And I love Manuel Silva's description of the Garden of Gethsemane when the guards came to get Jesus And he said, who are you looking for? And then he stood up and said, I am. And the he is supplied in your Bible. He literally said, I am. And do you remember what happened at that point? They collapsed. 
They fell to the ground. Okay, Jesus very clearly made the claim to be none other than God in human form. And Jesus said, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly. Now that would seem to be a good thing, but because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest from the trees. These scriptures are all about me. The entire Bible is the story of Jesus, the creator who is fully God. And I want to tie this together with the prophecy in Isaiah. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. And he will be our ruler. But now notice the titles. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Who's the Wonderful Counselor? Well, typically we associate that with the Holy Spirit. Who's Mighty God, Eternal Father? The Father. Prince of Peace. Who's the Prince of Peace? Jesus. But I think the point here is that Jesus came, God came in human form to fully and perfectly represent the character of the Trinity. And every story in the Bible, once again, should be read through the lens of Jesus Christ. Well, I'd like to make four major points in this talk today, which is kind of an overview in how to approach the Old Testament. The first is that the focus of our search, as we've said, as we read through the Bible, is to come closer and closer to knowing the truth about the character of our God. And the evidence, really, for this is in the stories, not so much in the statements. And we like very much, especially as adults, the statements, God is love. Um, and those very, very simple statements. But what do we typically do? I, I wish sometimes someone would do a breakdown. How much of the Bible is a story and how much are statements? But the great majority is a story. Okay, what we often tend to do is uh, we let the children worry about Samson and Gideon and Goliath. And we adults, no, we just take the statements. All right, but no, the stories, that is really the evidence. What is better evidence that God is Love. Those three words, or the way he treated the woman caught in adultery, or the way he treated the thief on the cross, which convinces you more that God is love. It's in the stories. Okay, but again, if we're going to be honest, we need to take and collect all of the stories. And so I think we need to take all the stories and ask of every story, what does this story tell me about God? What do I learn about the character of God in this story? And in my own Experience. When we do this, the Bible just opens up. And I want to give you just a few examples of this. For example, what comes to your mind off the top of your head about the story of Gideon? Is it a character of God's story, the story of Gideon? Well, a few hundred men, they went off and they killed the Midianites. It's, uh, it's not a very meaty story for us adults about the character of God, is it? Well, let's come back and let's read the story, just a small part of it, and let's ask, what does the story of Gideon tell me about God? So you remember the story, how the Lord came to Gideon, and he said, you can do it because I will help you. You will crush the Midianites as easily as if they were only one man. And Gideon replied, give me some proof that you are really the Lord. Please do not leave until I bring you an offering of food. And he said, God said, I will stay until you come back. Now, can you demand proof of God like that? God goes to the trouble of coming down, and Gideon asks for proof. What does God do? 
under that kind of a circumstance. Well, what happened? Do you remember? What did Gideon do? He went off and he cooked a goat. Now, has anyone here ever cooked a goat? Do you have any idea about... Oh, Manuel. About how long does it take to cook a goat? Just roughly. Okay. Point is, it's a long time. And I like to try to imagine... What do you think God did during that time while the goat is being cooked? Did he go for a walk? Go back up to heaven and come back down when it was ready? Did he sit patiently on the rock? I mean, I like to imagine our God coming down. Gideon asks for proof. And he goes off and cooks a goat while our God sits and patiently waits. God could have just said, poof, and could have provided whatever. But he let Gideon go off. And you remember that the goat was consumed by fire and Gideon had the evidence that he needed. Okay, but what happened next? Was Gideon convinced? No, he needed a fleece, right? And he asked first for a wet fleece and dry ground. And God, okay, I'll give you some more proof. So a second time. God helps Gideon's really uh, poor faith. But, and I find this rather humorous, but uh, I just imagine Gideon thinking, you know what, the dew would probably be soaked up in the fleece and it probably would evaporate off the ground. I should have asked for it the other way around. So he did. Oh, no, three times? Can you do that to God three times and ask for proof? And, of course, our gracious God gave Gideon, all of the evidence that he needed. So is this story primarily about Gideon? No. This story is primarily about the very patient and gracious character of our God. But it's just an example of how every story, if we're looking at it from the lens of what does it tell me about God, uh, I believe the Bible opens up to us. Well, as another example of searching for the character of God or searching for the ideal as revealed by Jesus... Let's turn to the story of David and Goliath. Anything revealed there about the character of God? Well, our children certainly love this story. It's a very exciting story in the Bible. But you might not remember exactly how it ended. So let me just quote the words here in 1 Samuel, where David ran to him, stood over him, took Goliath's sword out of its sheath, and cut off his head and killed him. And when the Philistines saw their hero was dead, they ran away. Now, my question, I mean, we could ask a number of uh, gruesome questions here. How long does it take to cut off the head of a giant? I imagine that that took some time. Uh, was he killed by the stone or was he killed by decapitation? Uh, I'm not sure that we really know, but I think the more important question is, how do we imagine God in this story? Do we imagine the Trinity, like uh, three men watching a football game and uh, when David cut off Goliath's head, you know, there were high fives and fist pumping going on up in heaven. No, if Jesus is God, if Jesus is our perfect reflection of God's character, do you imagine that God was delighted when Goliath was killed? Now, I would say Goliath, yes, he's one of God's children, behaving very badly, but I think this story is far, far from the ideal of what we should be looking for. Okay, this story reveals God, yes, helping David, absolutely. But this is not the ideal revealed by Jesus Christ. Where do we look in the life of David for something that is closer to the ideal? Well, I thought of several examples here, but, but this is one I like that occurred a little bit later on. And you'll remember that David, towards the end of his life, uh, did many bad things. And he had to flee Jerusalem 
as Absalom, his son, came to take it in power. He was humiliated. But it gets even worse because as he is fleeing, notice one of Saul's relatives, Shimei, came out to meet him, cursing him as he came. Shimei started throwing stones at David and his officials, even though David was surrounded by his men and bodyguards. Shimei cursed him and said, Get out, get out, murderer, criminal. You took Saul's kingdom, and now the Lord is punishing you for murdering so many of Saul's family, which wasn't true. The Lord has given the kingdom to your son Absalom, and you are ruined, you murderer. Abishai said to the king, Your majesty, why do you let this dog curse you? Let me go over there and cut off his head. All right, but notice David's reply. This is none of your business, the king said to Abishai and his brother Joab. So David and his men continued along the road. Shimei kept up with them, walking on the hillside. He was cursing and throwing stones and dirt at them as he went. Now, I don't know that we read this part of David's life very often to our children. But which is closer to the ideal? Cutting off the heads of our enemies or having the power to cut off their heads and yet not doing so? I would say this story is a much brighter light and much closer to the ideal than the story of Goliath. So perhaps we adults should go back and look at some of these stories again and ask, what does it say about God and what is closer to the ideal revealed by Jesus Christ. Well, a second point about the Old Testament, and I think this is a critically important one, is that God is very frequently described as actively doing what he instead allows to happen. Very important to our understanding. Um, it was hard to whittle this down to just a few examples, but let's go through a couple. One is described in 2 Samuel 24. The Lord was angry at Israel again. And he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. Now, does this verse set well with all of you? Does the Lord tempt to evil? Did the Lord lead David to believe it would be a good idea to do something bad? No, we read in James, God does not tempt to evil. Okay, so that's why it's very fascinating here. This was an early description here in 2 Samuel, a book written much later in Chronicles, same story. Same story, it's described this way. Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel, so he made David decide to take a census. It's the same story. Now, which one is closer to the reality of what actually happened? Well, probably, aren't we told we're led astray by our own evil desires? Satan can't force us to do something bad. All right, but here the Bible writers are grappling to describe what happened here as David gave the census. But notice the contrast. God did it. Satan did it. Let me give you another example. David described the death of Saul before it happened this way. By the living Lord, David continued, I know that the Lord himself will kill Saul now notice, here are the two ways that David describes it might happen. He'll kill Saul either when his time comes to die a natural death or when he dies in battle. Either of these in David's way of thinking was God killing Saul. And you remember the story, how Saul went to the witch of Endor. He was completely discouraged. He went out to fight in the battle and he fell 
on his sword and killed himself. It was a suicide. But the famous description here, and I should have put the more authoritative King James, thus God slew Saul. But so the Lord killed him, is the description. Did God kill Saul? Didn't lay a hand on him. Saul committed suicide, but the description is God killed him. Now, in the next hour, when we talk about God's anger, um, I think this will tie together just a little bit better. But again, the, the contrast here is very important as we try to understand the reality of what happened. Now, let's look at one of the commandments, the second commandment. And here, certainly there couldn't be anything the, the slightest bit misleading in the Ten Commandments. But here in the second commandment, right in the middle, we have God saying, I bring punishment on those who hate me and on their descendants down to the third and fourth generation. Did any of you have something bad happen to you this week? Maybe it was God punishing you for something that your great-great-grandfather did. Is that, is that the meaning of this passage? Okay, that would be rather discouraging, wouldn't it? Well, we read on in Ezekiel a little later that God does not punish the sons, the children, for the sins of their parents. He does not do that. But yet the description to the people is God actively punishing down to the third and fourth generation. Now, in a way, though, this is really true. If I am a drunk and I come home every night and beat my children, are there natural consequences to the third and fourth generation of those kinds of actions? Most definitely. Okay, those kinds of behaviors have very, very uh, natural consequences down to the third and fourth generation. So this is actually true, but again, what I'm trying to point out is God is described as the one actively doing it. No, God allows that to happen. He gives us the freedom to leave his side and experience those natural consequences. Well, we'll have more time to talk about this uh, in just a little bit on God's anger. But in Ezekiel, as another example, God is many times described as the one who would actively destroy and burn to the ground Jerusalem. The city of murderers is doomed. I myself will pile up the firewood. And it goes on in terrifying verses, God saying he would stoke the flames. He would burn the city down. Okay, but we just have to read the account. What actually happened to Jerusalem? Did God stoke the flames of that fire? No. In, in several places, we read Nebuchadnezzar, his general, the Babylonians burned down Jerusalem, not God. But yet God is the one described as doing it. Okay, two more examples. Pharaoh, you're familiar with Pharaoh, his heart being hardened. How do we imagine his heart being hardened? Well, let's read how Moses described this event. Who would know better than Moses? And he described it this way. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before them. Now, which one do you like? You have three choices here. One is, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The other is just the statement, his heart was hardened. And then we have God described as the active instigator, God hardened his heart. 
Okay, we're looking for the reality in this story. And some of you may have heard the illustration, but it's the most helpful one that I've heard. Um, if you take a lump of clay, a lump of butter, you put it in the oven, you turn the temperature up, what happens? What happens to the clay? It becomes hard. What happens to the butter? Of course, it melts. And so Pharaoh here, as we imagine his heart, his mind, God is presenting evidence to Pharaoh. Evidence, evidence, evidence. Pharaoh at every turn rejected rejected, rejected. Pharaoh hardened his heart. His heart was hard, but yet God was the one who brought this upon Pharaoh. Okay, he brought this time of trial by bringing the evidence of the plagues and so on. So in a sense, God was actively involved. But it was Pharaoh's free will decision to harden his own heart. Okay, these verses should not be troubling to us as we begin to put them together. Well, Jesus use this same language. At the very end of his ministry, he quoted this very sad verse in Isaiah. God has blinded their eyes and closed their minds so that their eyes would not see and their minds would not understand and they would not turn to me, says God, for me to heal them. Did Jesus really want to heal those people? I mean, there's no question. He wanted to heal them desperately. Would it make any sense then for God to arbitrarily close ears, close minds, so that Jesus would have no opportunity to heal? No. But yet it is described in that way as God is the one hardening their hearts. We know that he didn't. Now here's a challenging one. I want to know what you think about this described in Numbers. And I won't read the whole verse, but this is at the end of the 40 years rebellion, wandering in the wilderness. And we have this description of the, patient, of the people once again rebelling against God. And then right here in the middle, after complaining about the food, wanting to go back to Egypt, such a recurring theme, we read that the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and many Israelites were bitten and died. Now, what do you think? Did God send those snakes to bite the people? Well, here we don't have another parallel passage, so this may be somewhat uh, difficult to answer, but the most famous member of this church, and I mean in the history of this church, over a hundred years ago wrote that God did not send the snakes. No, he was protecting those people every step of the way. Remember, their shoes did not wear out. They had food and water miraculously provided. But yet when the people reached such a point of rebellion that they essentially said to God, take a hike, get lost. He did. He gave them freedom. He left them. And what happened? The snakes who were already there, I mean, the desert was teeming with snakes. Those snakes began to bite the people as they naturally would. So did God send the snakes? No, he removed his protection and the snakes began to bite the people. Do you like that interpretation? I do very much. Well, let's, let's go through now a third. So we've said, we're searching for the character of God. That's most important of all. The next point I want to make is God the iconoclast. Do you know what an iconoclast is? I put the uh, definition up here. It's one who destroys religious images. One who attacks settled beliefs or institutions. And C.S. Lewis wrote that God is the great iconoclast. Who is the ultimate iconoclast? Jesus. Did anyone expect God in human form to be like Jesus? Did anyone think he would be that way? 
Now, Jesus was the ultimate iconoclast, shattering every previous picture of what God was like. And I wish we had more time to go through this category, but I'm just going to give you one example, and that is the story of Abraham and Isaac. God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show to you. Now, if a voice came to you in the middle of the night and told you to go sacrifice one of your children, would you do it? Did Abraham do it? He got up, he packed, and he left. Now, if you really had faith, would you be out the door preparing to carry through with what the voice had told you? How do we understand this story? Well, if we try to understand the setting in this time, was child sacrifice common in the Old Testament? Extremely common. For example, this is a very interesting story in 2 Kings. We read about the king of Moab fighting against the Israelites, and he realized that he was losing the battle. He took 700 swordsmen with him and tried to force his way through enemy lines and escape to the king of Syria, but he failed. So he took his oldest son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him on the city wall as a sacrifice to the god of Moab. The Israelites were terrified, and so they drew back from the city and returned to their own country. Why were the Israelites terrified? They're on foreign territory. The king of Moab has just performed the ultimate act. The ultimate act, which was to sacrifice your firstborn. The Israelites saw this, and they just turned and ran because of fear. They're out of their own land, and he's done this great thing, and uh, so they ran and fled. The appeasement model, the model that God is very pleased with the greatest sacrifice we could possibly make, which would be the death of your own child. This was prevalent in that time. So many examples here in Jeremiah. God, his own words here, they have built altars to Baal in Hinnom Valley to sacrifice their sons and daughters to the god of Moloch. Who offered children to the god of Moloch? None other than Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, developed at one point in his life such a warped picture of God that he actually began to sacrifice his children to the god Moloch. I did not command them to do this, and it did not even enter my mind that they would do such a thing. That's an interesting way for God to talk. It didn't enter my mind and to make the people of Judah sin. Now, we're familiar with this verse in Micah, but I want to back up just a couple verses to get it more in the context. What shall I bring to the Lord, the God of heaven, when I come to worship him? What should we bring? Shall I bring the best calves to burn as offerings to him? Will the Lord be pleased if I bring him thousands of sheep or endless streams of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn child to pay for my sins? Is this a serious question that is being asked here? Don't many believe that God is very pleased with blood, that his wrath is appeased by the shedding of blood? No, read on. The Lord has told us what is good. What does God want? What he requires of us is this, to do what is just, to do what is right, to show constant love and to live in humble fellowship with our God. 
So God does not require the death of our firstborn children. How can he make this point? Well, in the context, we need to go back now. And I don't know how many of you have seen this verse. It's in Joshua. Read the description of Abraham. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, Terah, and his sons, Abraham and Nahor, lived on the other side of the Euphrates River. And what were they doing? And served other gods. Who was serving other gods? Abraham and his family. God pulled Abraham. I mean, it's really incredible when you think about it. The down, down, down path from Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and now even Abraham and his family is described as worshiping other gods. The entire mindset of the world at that time was under the other principle that Tim described to you, the appeasement model. How does God break the people out of that model? Well, I think God here with Abraham and Isaac is using iconoclastic methods. And the summary point, I mean, if you were living at this time with all these other so-called gods in the world and you heard the story of Abraham and Isaac, what would be the summary point of that story? Would it not be, hey, the God of Abraham is different. He does not require child sacrifice. The God of Abraham does not need to be appeased. The God of Abraham will himself provide the sacrifice. That is the point of that story. I wish we had time to go through more of these. I believe that how God came to Job in a storm is another example of this. And uh, in the next hour, when I talk about God's wrath, we'll tell the story of Moses as God, again, using iconoclastic methods, building up the false picture and then shattering it. Now, Jesus never did that, did he? I think he did a couple of times. But let's look at the story of the Canaanite woman. You're familiar with this, how the disciples, I mean, she was a heathen. She's a woman. They're looking down on her. They wish Jesus would just really give her the cold shoulder. So what does Jesus do? Jesus did not say a word to her. Is that our picture of God? His disciples came to him and begged him, send her away. She's following us and making all this noise. Then Jesus replied. Now I like to leave out here what Jesus actually said. How do you imagine Jesus would reply? A woman is seeking help for her daughter. The disciples are giving her a hard time. Jesus, as you know Jesus, how would he reply to this woman? Well, it's shocking actually, but this is what he said. I have been sent only to the lost sheep of the people of Israel. That hurts just a little bit. What is Jesus doing? Well, notice the woman's reply. At this, the woman came and fell at his feet. Help me, sir, she said. Jesus answered. Now, Aren't some of you familiar with the words that when we come to God and we ask, help me, God, does he ever not hear that prayer? What did Jesus do? It isn't right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Is this a difficult story? Well, notice how the woman replies. That's true, sir, she answered, but even the dogs eat the leftovers that fall from their master's table. So Jesus answered her, you are a woman of great faith. What you want will be done for you. And at that very moment, her daughter was healed. So Jesus here, I see, building up, almost seeming to, for a short time, reinforce 
the disciples' false attitude towards the heathen and towards women in general, and then he absolutely shatters it. But notice, God only uses these methods when he's dealing with his friends. Job, Moses, Abraham, and this woman was a woman of great faith. Jesus knew her heart, and he knew that he could talk this way to this woman and that she would persist. And I think the disciples after that point, I'd like to think, had a changed picture of how to look at heathen and women. God, the great iconoclast. Well, the last category here, which we've really been doing all along, but is how critical it is to understand the setting as we look at the Old Testament. Now, just imagine, some of you, that uh, maybe you walk through Redlands, California, where I live, and you're walking on my street, and you look over, uh, there's a little brick wall on our backyard, and you happen to see me. And all you see is me, but I appear angry. Perhaps I'm shouting at one of my sons. And as you watch in amazement, um, the anger goes up. Maybe there are even threats, and you're shocked at this. You come back, maybe call Pastor Silva and say, you know what, I don't think we want to invite him here to speak at our church. Now, you only saw my face, but let's just say you missed the part of the picture where my son, who was only three at the time, had crawled out the window of the second story because he saw a bird's nest. I'm way out in the garden. There's two stories down, concrete. As a loving parent, would you use only soft words in that setting? If it were necessary, would you shout? Would you threaten? Would that not be loving to do that for your children? So, again, if you understand the setting, then I think the actions of a parent in that situation only makes sense. So, so many stories I see in the Old Testament, when we understand how desperate the situation really was, we can see that God did the most loving thing. For example, let's look at the plagues of Egypt. I think this is one that has bothered many people. And we look through all of the things that were sent upon those people. Blood, frogs, gnats, you know the list, all the way down. Okay, we try to understand. Again, let's look all around this story and try to put it together. In this time, how would you measure the success of a god? How would you say, I mean, there were so many gods to choose from. How could you decide uh, this is a, a good god, this isn't? I mean, it was basically based on power, right? How successful was the country uh, in the battlefield? And so when Moses come, comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, uh, wouldn't this be ridiculous to Pharaoh? I mean, Moses represents a people whose God is a God of a bunch of slaves. How, why in the world would Pharaoh respect in any way Moses? Well, this verse, I think, is very telling, describing the Passover. On that night, I will go through the land doing what? Punishing all the gods of Egypt. And when you look through this list, and I won't go through this here, but if you go through every single one of the plagues, each one had, in the Egyptians' mind, a god associated with it. There was a god of the flies, there was a god of frogs, and so on. And what God is doing here in the plagues is, I think, the only way he could reach Pharaoh and those people, which is to systematically go through each one I mean, if you are sweeping up piles of flies after they've all died, would you want to pray to the God of the flies that night? It wouldn't make much sense, would it? 
So God systematically goes through each one. This God is not real. The God of the Son, not real. And defeats each and every one of them until finally, I think the only conclusion is, well, I guess the God of Israel is the strongest God. I think that's all God could reach the people with at that time. Hey, I'm the strongest. And what I find sad is often in Christianity when the only message is that our God is strong. And I'm glad our God is strong, but that's not the good news. The good news is that our strong God is like Jesus in character. Okay, but he's making the point here, okay, I'm strong. That's all he can reach these people with. Okay, another description. Just a short time later, Mount Sinai. You're familiar with the description here of how God came, and I'll read through this quickly, but it's a terrifying description. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. A thick cloud appeared on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast was heard. All the people in the camp trembled with fear. Moses led them out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had come down on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and all the people trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet became louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. Now, why did God come in this way? Couldn't he have come as he did at the Mount of Olives and said to those people, Blessed are the meek. Why did he come and shake the mountain in such a way? Again, we're trying to understand the context so we don't have to read far. Right here in Exodus 19, the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud. Here's the explanation why. So that the people will hear me speaking with you and will believe you from now on. Were there problems of rebellion in these people? Did they question the authority of Moses? Yes, you remember Korah's rebellion? And even Aaron and Miriam, weren't they miffed at times because of Moses and his authority? So God comes to speak to Moses to give him some authority. And these people who had just witnessed the plagues of Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, they're getting water from rocks, they're getting bread from heaven... They're still complaining and grumbling up to the foot of Mount Sinai. And uh, I'm almost embarrassed to, uh, to read these verses here with uh, young people in the audience, but some people think the book of Leviticus, oh, it's, uh, it's a lot of uh, boring reading. But again, in the context, it's very important. Look at the rules that were given at this time. Put to death any woman who practices magic. Put to death anyone who has sexual relations with an animal. And in Leviticus, do not have sexual intercourse with any of your relatives. And we could list example after example. Would God give these rules if it wasn't going on at this time? No. This was going on at this time. God has to give these very hard rules. And this tells us something very important about these very hardened, rebellious people. What are they going to understand? A soft, gentle voice? Not likely. God has to reach them with these methods. Well, we could ask, do you think God overdid it by coming down to Mount Sinai in that way? Was he too strong? Uh, did they obey perfectly for a year, at least outwardly? Two months? No, what were they doing 40 days later? Dancing drunk around a golden calf. God did not overdo it by coming down to the mountain in that way. But again, it's only as we put the whole context together that we understand this makes perfectly good sense. 
And I like reading the story of Moses, that he was the only one at the mountain who was not afraid. Well, very quickly, as one more example of this, the story of Elisha. And you'll recall that Elijah had just been miraculously translated to heaven with chariots of fire. And so Elisha now is God's designated prophet. But notice what happened. Some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Okay, that's a hard story. Bears coming out of the woods and mauling youths. How do we understand it? How do we put it in the setting? Well, you just have to go back one chapter in 2 Kings to read that the king of Israel, what's the king of Israel supposed to do? He's supposed to represent God to the people. What happened? He fell off his balcony, and instead of turning to God, he consulted the God of Ekron to see if he would get better. Even the king of Israel is worshiping other gods. God has no friends at this time. And so Elijah has been brought up, chariots of fire, but these youths are so unimpressed by all of this that they mock his successor. Hey, you go up too, Baldy. You go up too. So Elisha pronounces a curse, and I think God very reluctantly sends these she-bears to uh, scare those youths. And you'll notice no one bothered Elisha again in his ministry. God had to protect one of his few friends on the earth at that time. But I think this helps us explain even some unusual things. Have you read this? After Elisha died. Then Elisha died and was buried. Groups of Moabite raiders used to invade the land each spring. Once, when some Israelites were burying a man, they spied a band of these raiders. So they hastily threw the corpse into the tomb of Elisha and fled. But as soon as the body touched Elisha's bones, the dead man revived and jumped to his feet. Sounds too spectacular, right? I mean, imagine being in a funeral procession, and you turn around, there are people chasing after you, and so frantically you dump this body into the grave, and then you turn around, you see not only the band of Moabites, you see the man you just dumped in the grave running after you. I mean, that would be uh, rather scary, wouldn't it? So why does this happen? God is trying to get attention. All right? How many people does he have representing him in the world? And so wouldn't everyone tell this story about, wow, did you hear about this guy? He was dumped in Elisha's grave and he came back to life? Maybe people would go back and rethink a little bit about what Elisha had told them. Again, in the setting, it makes sense. The point is, as we come closer and closer in story after story after story and understanding what God is really up to, we come closer and closer to the reality that God is like Jesus. God is love. And I believe our contribution as a church, our unique contribution, is to tell the world, really to go through with people, individually or in groups, in a book-by-book Bible study, or just to tell people what God is like. You don't need to have a doctor of divinity behind your name to lead out in a small group and in story after story to ask, What does this story tell you about God? I think that's our mission as a church. Well, finally, just to make a a last point here, I want you to imagine, just to illustrate the uphill battle God has had in working with people in the Old Testament, I want you to imagine that right here in Victoria that we're going to establish another church and that you have at your disposal any of the people, any of the great men and women 
of the Old Testament to choose from. Let's say to be head elder or deaconess. Okay, that would be fantastic, right? Let's go through a list of just a few. What about Noah? How would all of you feel about Noah? Let's nominate him to be head elder. I mean, wouldn't that be fantastic? Built the boat and everything? I mean, man. Okay, so we're in a committee discussing this. And uh, do you think maybe one hand would go up and say, you know, I just I have some concerns about Noah. You remember when he got drunk and uh, Ham had went in and covered him, or Shem did, and... I'm not sure we want someone who has perhaps had some problems with alcohol involved, at least as a leader. All right, well, let's, let's maybe go through. Maybe we can come up with some other names. Abraham, we've talked about. Hero of faith. Fantastic. Anyone here object to Abraham? Well, maybe a hand goes up. Um, do we, uh, are we letting a polygamist be an elder in the church? Do you think that sets a good example? Okay, well... Let's, uh, let's go on. How about, let's look for a woman. How about Rahab? You remember David? How many, just a couple generations later, um, she is, uh, Jesus Christ came from her lineage, Rahab. And I think maybe a couple hands would go up. You know, a former prostitute? I mean, just to avoid confusion, maybe we wouldn't have Rahab just because of her occupation. Okay, let's try to find someone. David, okay, 20 hands go up. Um, Adultery, but then he had to go and uh, murder Uriah. Um, he's just not the best example of a head elder. Who can we find? Uh, the wisest man that ever lived. Okay, lots of problems here. I mean, is the point coming across here that these people God has worked with have had lots of problems? Solomon was involved in child sacrifice. How many wives did he have? Uh, is that who you want as your head elder? Well, God apparently was able to work with Solomon to do some wonderful things. Hosea, any problems with Hosea? Someone says, well, he married a prostitute and an argument breaks out in the church, but God told him to marry a prostitute. Okay, let's just get out of the Old Testament altogether. Peter, on this rock, on this truth, I will build my church. Wouldn't we love to have Peter? Would any of you be concerned, though, perhaps about his temper? Uh, perhaps that he betrayed Jesus so badly. Have you read in Galatians where Paul had to confront him to his face and in public? for his behavior. Maybe he's a little hot-headed to be a head church elder. Let's skip forward a long, long way. Let's go to Martin Luther. Okay, hero of the Reformation. We all stand up in unison. We love Martin Luther. Yes, we'll take Martin Luther to be our head elder. Did you know that Martin Luther had a nickname? King of Hops. Apparently he really liked his beer. All right, but God was able to do spectacular things through Martin Luther. Okay, the point is, God is working with all of these wonderful people. C.S. Lewis, let's come down to very modern times. Some wonderful quotes of C.S. Lewis. God will look to every soul like its first love because he is its first love. C.S. Lewis wrote some incredible things. But maybe a hand goes up in the very back of the church. I have discovered a picture of C.S. Lewis and I have an objection. And apparently C.S. Lewis liked to smoke. God was able to do wonderful things through C.S. Lewis, but apparently he did like to smoke. Now, the point is, aren't you glad that God is in charge and not a committee of you and I? Our God is the only hero of the Bible. God has worked through the worst of individuals, eventually culminating in his own life and death on earth. And we should look to Jesus Christ 
as the ultimate example of what God is like. Let's pray. Dear Father, we know that we are just scratching the surface of who you are. But just now we express our admiration for you. Open our eyes to the truth, dear Father, and give us the words and the actions to represent you as a God of love to the world. Amen.